Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, coming up on today's show, what kind of technology can we use to deal with the threat of rogue drones? Not a very good idea to use rockets, missiles or even snipers' rifles in the vicinity of a big civilian airport. How Dutch hospitals are leading the fight against superbugs. It's a huge problem. At any given time, a million and a half people around the world have an infection that they have picked up at the hospital and a new kind of camera that can see around corners. It would be interesting if we could extend that environmental awareness beyond the line of sight so that, for example, you could notice that there's a child on the other side of a parked car. I'm Tim Cross, the technology editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage. First up, rogue drones. For something that only weighs a few kilograms and doesn't cost a great deal of money, small consumer drones have been causing an awful lot of havoc. The summer of dangerous encounters between planes and threats controlled from the ground has seen one more very close call between a drone and an airliner on approach. All flights in and out of Gatwick, Britain's second busiest airport, have been suspended after two drones were seen flying. Those two drones flew way too close to a plane tonight, forcing a temporary ground stop here at Newark Airport. There are more than 200 anti-drone products either available or in development, but not much in the way of consensus on what exactly will work and what won't. To discuss the situation, I'm joined by Paul Markilli, The Economist Innovation Editor. Hi, Paul. Hi. So, Paul, I suppose the basic question that most listeners will have is, hang on, can't we just simply shoot these things out of the sky? Not a very good idea to use rockets, missiles or even snipers' rifles in the vicinity of a big civilian airport. It's not just collateral damage. You know, a rifle bullet is lethal at two kilometres or even more. But also, what if you just wing the drone and it goes out of control, spins around wildly and crashes into some public area like people queuing for at a taxi rank at an airport? That's not going to be very acceptable. So the technology at the moment is really being aimed at what they call a soft kill, which in various forms of radio jamming. And I suppose another question you sometimes see asked is, well, can't we ignore these things? You know, modern aircraft are designed to survive bird strikes and so on, and the drones are pretty small. Can't we just sort of fly anyway? And if one hits a plane, the drone's going to come off much worse. And, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Not necessarily. The thing about a drone, unlike a bird, is you know, a bird's a fairly consistent quality, but a drone's got bits of metal in it. It's also got lithium polymer batteries, which you know can have a tendency to burst into flames. And so they could do a lot more damage than a bird. Okay, so if it's not really practical to shoot them down or just carry on regardless, what can we do about them? Well, we need technological solutions because in the hands of a terrorist, of course, a drone is a very different, dangerous machine because they'll ignore any rules and regulations like registering drones and things like that. They could become very threatening, especially if they carry explosives, as some drones have been doing. 
the way that most companies now are looking at dealing with this is to have sophisticated what some call 3D radar, which can actually pick drones up several kilometers out. Airfield radar is not terribly good at doing this or differentiating them from birds. Now, if you can spot them early enough and track them well enough, then you can respond fairly quickly. Again, you can also be fairly sure that when the threat's gone, the airport could be reopened. OK, so it might be getting a bit easier to spot them, which is the first half of the problem. But then once you know there's a drone there, how do you actually get it out of the sky? What is being used are softer versions of military electronic warfare. You don't want that to be turned up too high because, again, in a civilian airport, you could risk damaging the sensitive instruments in the control tower and also in aircraft itself. So it needs to be very selective and very carefully targeted. So these anti-drone systems need to analyse what the drone is likely to be doing and then selectively modulate sort of various kinds of signals to sort of force it to land, take over its operating system, what they call spoofing the drone so that you can effectively take control of it and make it land. And I've also heard people are working on things like firing nets out of sort of compressed air bazookas at them, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's lots of ideas like that around and drones that will chase after them and you know capture them as well and crash into them. The problem with that is that airports are very big places, you know, and uh, you've got to have a system that can operate at night and in poor visibility. And some of these things possibly could indeed work. Also, like a guy out with a good shotgun, if he's uh, got a good aim, that's fairly safe, unlike a rifle bullet. But you've got to be close to the drone and you've got to be able to spot it and be there quickly. And these things seem to be fleeting. They come in, they disappear, they come again. Will that person be in the right place at the right time? So there's a whole load of technological solutions that people are sort of tinkering with. But how does this work on the regulation side? Well, there is an interesting uh, tension there, because on one side, we're getting the regulations being relaxed. For instance, there are now plans to allow people to fly drones out of the line of sight, for instance, of the operator, which would greatly increase their business use. And some people think this is going to be a $100 billion business in a few years' time, surveying, photographing, doing all these jobs like that. But of course, allowing a drone to fly out of sight of its operator tends to alarm some in the aerospace community by saying, well, that could cause more accidents unless these drones can be integrated somehow into the air traffic control system. In time, one day, technology may allow that. But at the moment, that's not there. Paul, thanks very much. Pleasure. Next up... Across Europe, once rare and dangerous superbugs resistant to most kinds of antibiotics are spreading fast. Just over 70% of the deaths caused by them come from infections that people pick up in hospitals. But there's one country that's doing very well in quarantining and limiting the spread of these diseases, and that's the Netherlands. To discuss this and what other countries can learn from the Dutch, I'm joined by Slavea Chankova, the Economist healthcare correspondent. Hi, Slavea. Hi, Tim. So how big a problem is this exactly? It's a huge problem. At any given time, a million and a half people around the world have an infection that they have picked up at the hospital. And oftentimes, these infections are with bugs that are resistant to antibiotics, so they're highly deadly. In Europe, more than 100,000 people a year die from hospital-acquired infections and a similar number in America. So it is a huge problem. 
And some of these infections have mortality rates on the order of 50%, don't they? That's right. Carbapenem-resistant gut bacteria, which are some of the most dangerous ones uh, that are spreading now, are lethal in about 50% of cases compared to 10 to 30% with some other dangerous bacteria. And so among all that, one country stands out a bit for being quite successful at combating these things, and that's the Netherlands. What exactly is it they do that makes them so good at this? So they have a strategy called surge and destroy, which is essentially when some people come into hospital, they're being tested for these dangerous superbugs. And if they test positive, they're quarantined in special isolation rooms. And all health workers who care for them, have to follow very strict instructions. They, In some cases, they have to uh, wear face masks and gloves and special gowns that they discard on the way out of these special isolation rooms. I mean, this sounds like the kind of precautions you take when you're dealing with something, you know, really nasty, like a hemorrhagic fever, like, like Ebola or something. Yeah. In fact, uh, at, at one big hospital I visited in Amsterdam, uh, they call one of those isolation rooms the Ebola room. And if they ever have an Ebola patient, that's where they will keep them. But at the moment, they're full of people with these superbugs instead. That's right. Yes, that's the strategy that uh, the Dutch use. And how easy is it to export that strategy? Because it sounds like you need to dedicate, you know, several rooms in the hospital to this. You're going to need to be able to cope when some of your workers can't do other duties because they've been caring for people with these illnesses. I mean, that's not easy, is it? Right. Many hospitals around Europe have very few single bedrooms, so they can't afford to replicate the Dutch strategy wholesale. But there are some very simple things that they can do. And one thing that was done really well at this Dutch hospital, it's a 700-bed hospital, they pay really good attention to the basics. So basic hospital hygiene. How basic are we talking here? We are talking about cleaning your hands. Literally, it's hand washing. And uh, nowadays, it's not washing with soap and water. It's mostly alcoholic uh, hand rub, which is more effective and easy to use. But they, they're really zealous about it. And so hundreds of years after Semmelweis found out that you know, washing your hands is a good way to stop you transferring infections, I think if you look around at some modern hospitals, you had some numbers from, from Britain in the 2000s about just how bad some hospital hygiene was. Yes. Um, when there were investigations of outbreaks of superbugs in British hospitals around 2005, 2006, investigators found filthy wards, healthcare workers who were washing their hands, cleaning their hands less than 30% of the time. And the UK made it, it a legal requirement for hospitals to have proper hygiene. It started monitoring compliance. The results became public and there was a rapid improvement in the rate of the deaths from superbugs, um, deaths from MRSA infections declined by 90% between 2004 and 2012. So 30%, that's shocking. I mean, all those expensive medical school educations, you'd think, you know, hand washing, everyone knows the importance of that. Why was it so low? Well, before antibiotics, the hospitals were, you know, really stringent about hand washing and cleanliness because people would easily die without, without antibiotics if they had an infection. When antibiotics became invented after penicillin, uh, more and more antibiotics were available. If someone contracted an infection, uh, they were just given an antibiotic. Uh, people stopped dying. So doctors and nurses became complacent. And now we are in a situation where antibiotics are no longer working. So we have to go back to basics. So it sounds like Britain managed to achieve quite a lot just by something quite simple, you know, really encouraging people to wash their hands. Have other countries not sort of learned those lessons yet? 
Unfortunately not. A study by the European Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that in Italy, for example, hand hygiene was very poor in um, most of the hospitals they visited. Also, if you look at the level of use of uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizer in hospitals per patient per day, which is a uniform measure, you see that some countries like uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Italy have uh, rates of usage, which is, you know, a fifth of the amount used in some of the Scandinavian countries. And why is that? Because it seems like quite a, a sort of simple, easy thing to, to do. Unfortunately, it seems that in many countries, fighting superbugs uh, in hospitals, it's just not a priority. So there isn't really a concerted plan and focus on improving hospital hygiene and, and really tackling the problem. Some countries are waking up to that, so hopefully we'll see things getting better uh, in the next couple of years. But there are also practical issues. So um, a healthcare worker, uh, in some cases, has to clean his or her hands about 100 times per shift, especially those who work in intensive care units. So that's a, that's a practical challenge. People often get dry hands and may just neglect using hand sanitizer for practical reasons. So it's really important to convince them of the benefits and find ways to uh, provide products that work for them. So I guess the message is if you can afford fancy expensive separate isolation wards, then great. But there are some sort of cheaper and more basic things that, that work pretty well as well. Yes, it's uh, hand cleaning is probably the most effective thing that can be done to prevent hospital-acquired infections with any, any bug, whether it's a super bug or less harmless. Like many things, the trick is don't overcomplicate the problem. Slavea, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Finally, for the past decade, computer scientists have been working on cameras that can see round corners. The idea is to analyse the light scattering off objects that are hidden from direct view and then reconstruct the images of those objects with computers. This line of research is called non-line-of-sight imaging, or NLOS, and typically you've needed special lasers and very sensitive light detectors, which has made it delicate and pretty pricey. But researchers at Boston University have just demonstrated a much simpler and cheaper NLOS imaging system that uses just standard digital cameras and a laptop computer. Alec Jar, one of our science correspondents, discussed this research with Vivek Goyal, who is an associate professor of electrical and computer engineering at Boston University. Hello, Vivek. Welcome to Babbage. Hello. It's great to be with you. So, Vivek, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about the basic premise behind this system of yours? The basic idea is to try to use a matte wall surface as if it were a mirror. So to be able to use that matte wall surface to extend the range of view. In a normal situation, of course, light reflecting off a matte wall surface doesn't tell you anything about what's around the corner. How does your system get around that issue? Yeah, so the reason that a wall doesn't work like a mirror in our common experience is that the light scatters off of the wall in every direction, unlike a mirror, which for one incoming light ray direction sends the light in one direction. So we need some mechanism to try to undo that kind of combining or mixing of the light. And so how do you do it? So our method is to take advantage of opaque objects that just happen to be in the scene. So when there's an opaque object between the scene of interest and the matte wall that's within our field of view, the opaque object and the scene behind it together create a penumbra that we can measure. And what we've discovered is that we can process a simple, ordinary photograph of that penumbra to not only learn 
where the opaque object is, but to also form an image of the scene that's behind it, though not completely obscured by it. And so when you say penumbra, you mean a partial shadow on the wall, don't you? This is a sort of range of shades of grey. How do you, from those shades of grey, essentially, get the image? I mean, if to our eyes, we won't see anything from that. Yes, absolutely. You know, it turns out that the opaque object is separating the light rays into some that are blocked and some that are not blocked. Now, the important thing is, with a camera, you can be measuring at easily a million points on the wall simultaneously. You know, we have megapixel cameras in our pockets all day. So you make many, many measurements, and each of those measurements has a slightly different combination of scene contributions. When you have a large number of distinct combinations of light from the scene of interest, then you can write that as a system of equations and do your best at solving that system of equations to form the image. And so you unscatter the light essentially, mathematically, computationally. Right. Say you've got this image now. Do you have to know what the shape or the position of this object that you've put in front of the scene is? Because that seems to be a limitation. Yes, indeed. In what we've demonstrated thus far, we have a known shape for that opaque occluding object. It turns out that we're able to estimate the position with the shape having been known ahead of time and then additionally form the image of the scene behind it. And so do you imagine a time when you would be able to not know what that thing is? Because in the real world, you might not know what these occluding objects are, what, what, you know, what shape they are, what size they are. Definitely. We have ongoing work along with collaborators, on being able to apply similar techniques even when the shape of the occluder is not known. In some sense, what we've explored is one extreme case where we have just a single snapshot. But if you imagine the occluding object being stationary and some motion in the scene, then a collection of snapshots or a video of the white wall would allow you to estimate the shape of the occluder and form images of the scene behind it simultaneously. There are other methods that could be used as well. So active optical methods might be used to measure the shape of the occluding object because it's closer to the wall, and then our methods could be applied to form the image of the scene behind the occluding object. Now, like all technologies, one hopes that this gets better and you will solve those problems. Can you throw your minds forward? What kinds of things would you be able to use your technology and other sort of non-line-of-sight imaging for? Where would it be applied best? Well, it, it would certainly be exciting if it had an impact in search and rescue towards sorts of situations where it may be dangerous for camera person to obtain direct line of sight to large parts of the scene searching for survivors or searching for dangerous objects. Or you could also imagine non-line-of-sight imaging techniques impacting autonomous navigation. Right now, autonomous vehicles are developed with LIDAR systems that form accurate 3D maps of the surroundings, but that's limited to line of sight from the vehicle. It would be interesting if we could extend that environmental awareness beyond the line of sight so that, for example, you could notice that there's a child on the other side of a parked car, or if you could identify vehicles that are coming from across street. I imagine soldiers would find this interesting too. 
I imagine so as well. And, and our work is in fact funded by DARPA. And I think we could we can imagine battlefield awareness sorts of applications for this technology. Vivek, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Alec Jar talking to Vivek Goyle. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. You can find more on all these stories in this week's Economist or online at economist.com. And please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Tim Cross. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.